you're staying with us, we're going to be looking at 1 Thessalonians. All right, so you can open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Now, um, last week we, we didn't get very far, although my purpose wasn't to get very far with the book itself. So um, we're going to just, um, I just want to recap um, a bit about the background of, of the Thessalonians, just as I think it will help us understand the book as we go further. So we, last week we looked a bit at the background um, of Paul and how he went from being a persecutor to being a preacher of the gospel and how he was faithful in what God called him to do. And even though he had difficult times being in God's will, he knew that what he was doing was what God wanted him to do. And this is the same message that Paul carries over to the Thessalonians, being in the midst, them being in the midst of persecution, as we find throughout the book, they stand strong because of the example they have in Paul's faithfulness to the word, despite the persecution that they're facing. And we also looked um, a little bit about the backstory of Thessalonians. You can read that in Acts chapter 17, and um, how Paul and Silas and um, um, Timothy went on this journey, and how many people got saved, including some Jews. But there were many Jews who did not believe. And because of their unbelief, because of their not, um, not hating actually this message that was contrary to what they um, were brought up with, because of this, they persecuted the, this church. And um, so Paul and Silas and um, Timothy are forced to leave the city, and so they leave the city. But they hadn't, didn't have time to disciple these people who were in Thess, Thessalonica. Okay. I struggle with that one. Okay, Thessalonica, got it. Okay, so they didn't get time to disciple these people, and this is now going to go into what is the message that um, he's bringing to these people, and what are the basics of the faith in this book of Thessalonians. Now, um, this book was written when Timothy came back after discipling these people, and so this letter is addressed from Paul to the church based on what Timothy brought back to them. Timothy came back and said, the church is doing well, and they have a few questions, and so then Paul now writes this letter to, to them. And then I just wrote here the key verses, if you want to jot it down in your Bible. Um, I guess you'll find different key verses as well, but I think from my study I found that those were some of the key verses of the book. And the purpose of this book is to establish young Christians in the basics of the faith. To establish young Christians in the basics of the faith. So I think for all of us, if you are... If you don't consider yourself a young Christian, it's always good to be able to go back to the basics and make sure you understand that. And if you are a young Christian, this is a very good place for you to start and for you to learn what are these things that, that you should know and understand from Scripture. So, let's get into the book. Amen. <laughs> All right, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timotheus, unto the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost 
and in much assurance, as ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So let's just stop there and um, let's just see if we'll get through these five verses today. Okay, so in verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, and Timotheus, I mentioned last week, Silvanus is Silas. So if you read about a man called Silas in Acts or anywhere else in the Bible, then you know it is this man. All right, now it says here, this church, the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this I see as a statement of the Godhead, a statement of, of the Trinity, I almost want to say. Because here we say, how can, how can the church be in God and in Christ if the two are not the same thing? All right? So the first principle as a young Christian that you need to understand is the concept of the Godhead. Or let me rather not say you need to understand. You need to know. You need to believe the concept of the Godhead. All right? So have a look quickly at John chapter 17. John chapter 17. John chapter 17 and verse 20. Now this is Jesus praying. He's praying for his disciples and he's also praying for us, his future disciples. We read that in verse 20, John 17, verse 20. It says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So that is the followers of the disciples. That includes us. And Jesus prays and he says, That they may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, and that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. So there we see Christ in God, God in Christ, and, we're, and we, the church, is in Christ. That is why we are referred to as the, the body of Christ. So in Colossians 2 verse 9, we read about um, God speaking, or it's speaking about Jesus, and it says, in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead. And so in Christ, is, in Christ is God and God is in Christ and there is a unity there. And we're part of that unity. Now why is that important to us? Why, why is this fundamental to the Christian faith? Well, the first thing is this being in Christ, okay? This is what we refer to as the baptism of the Holy Ghost, okay? This is when you get saved, you get placed in Christ, okay? Have a look at that in um, 1 Corinthians 12 quickly. 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 13. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it says, For by one Spirit are we all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether we be bond or free, and have been all made to drink of into one Spirit. So what it is saying here is that when you get saved, the Holy Spirit baptizes you and puts you in Christ. Now you are a partaker of Christ. And that, that means you are a partaker of His death. It means you are a partaker of His burial. It means you are a partaker of His resurrection. And so why this is so important as you continue in your Christian walk is because this is the gospel that saved you. The gospel that saved you is you being in Christ and you being a part of His death. You being a part of His burial and being a part of His resurrection, without that there is no salvation. And so being in Christ means you are a partaker of this, this gospel. And so if we say that based on this, that we can 
we can almost we can lose our salvation. It, may, it begs the question: Well, then, can can Christ lose his salvation? Because if we're in Christ and we're a partaker of Christ and we're seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and that Jesus Christ is eternal life, then being in Christ means we are eternally secure as Christ is secure. And so it's, it's a very important thing to understand, being in Christ, and Christ being in God, and that means Christ is with God in the heavenlies, and that is where we have our spiritual seat currently, if you are saved. And what, a, what an amazing thought that is to think that we are seated in heavenly places, in our, in our spirit, our, our eternal life, the moment we got saved, our eternal life began because Jesus Christ is eternal life. And so it's not something that we're waiting for, it's something that we can already start partaking in. And that is an absolute, absolute wonderful um, blessing. Now, I went and did a quick um, word search of this phrase, in Christ. And I'm not going to if you really want these verses, I'll give them to you afterwards, but I'm just going to run through a few things that we find in Christ. We find redemption. We find our sanctification. There's no condemnation in Christ. We are the adoption unto children in Christ. We have a heavenly seating in Christ. We have a desire for good works because of being in Christ. We have a new creation within us, and we have eternal life because of being in Christ. So all of these things are our part because when we get saved we get placed in Christ and so my question to you is if you have not been placed into Christ where do you find redemption how do you get sanctified you are under condemnation because the only place you can be freed from that is being in Christ and so I challenge you to 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 question or ask yourself am I in Christ Am I saved? Because it's only in Christ where we have these spiritual blessings. And at the back, well, I hope you keep your place in 1 Thessalonians, unlike I do. 1 Thessalonians. Now, at the, at the end of this verse, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1, it says, um, Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this church, as we said, is currently in persecution. It is in a trying time. And Paul says to them, grace and peace. Now, this peace that he is speaking about is definitely not the type of prosperity peace. It's not the type of physical, physical well-being necessarily. He's talking about a deeper peace. He's talking about something spiritual, something that transcends the, this physical realm. Because if he was preaching, imagine Paul was preaching a prosperity message. And so he was saying things like that um, God's peace will just fix all your problems and God's grace, He will just give you everything you need and you'll be fine and you'll never lack anything. Then the question comes, what happens as soon as this church comes into trials? Well, they doubt the, the message that Paul is bringing. So it brings doubt into the hearts of Christians. And I think so many Christians, I've spoken to so many Christians who say something in the line of, I used to be a Christian, or um, I, 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 I was saved, or something in that line. And I think so much of that has to do with them not understanding or not being taught the truth of Scripture. Because as soon as someone preaches something and he says, this is what the Bible says, and then it just, it's not like that, then obviously you're going to doubt the message. And so you doubt Christianity. Or imagine the, the opposite side of this, and that imagine Paul's example was 
not one of being in trouble, in persecution, him not having gone through this trial time and then coming here and then being able to say, you know what, sorry guys, I'm running ahead of myself. Revert, let's get back. Okay, so what I said is not the prosperity gospel, okay? So, I want you to look at um, First Thessalonians 3, verse 3. Here Paul is explaining exactly this not prosperity gospel. He's saying that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. We are appointed unto the affliction. So he's not speaking about this peace and this grace that is just physical and, 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 and material things. What Paul is actually saying here is, may God's undeserving gift of goodness and peace that surpasses your understanding keep you in this trying time. He's speaking about may this peace, this grace of God, keep you in this trying time. And it makes me think about um, Hebrews 4. I'm not exactly sure of the verse right now. It's the last verse. I think it's the last verse. <laughs> um, where it speaks about, let us approach the boldly the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace in the time of need. And so let us these people who are in this trying time, they can boldly approach the throne of God and obtain grace and they find peace that transcends their, their physical situation because God is so much greater than that situation they find themselves in. All right, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 2. It says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. Now, Paul gives us here, I think, a few pointers in, with regards to prayer. He's saying, we give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers. So, the first thing I see here is thankfulness. Thankfulness in prayer. Now, he's speaking here specifically about the caliber of these people's Christian walk. In verse 3, he goes on, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, your patience and hope of, in our Lord. So he's talking, he's thankful for these people's faithfulness, how they're holding on to God and how in this trying time, they are not letting go of Christ. And so he gives thanks. But I think the message here for all of us is that there's so much for us to be thankful for. We have so much good that God has given us. The fact that we can be saved. We, we read a verse this morning in, in Psalm 103 how that, that we are not given what we deserve. God's mercy is given to us. The fact that we have this church, the fact that we have lives to live and a hope of a future and salvation and all things. We have so much to be thankful for. And um, in your time this afternoon, you can read through um, Psalm 103 where David just goes and he just blesses God and he says, God, you are, you've been so good to me. And um, take time and think about that and make it, make it a big part of your prayer life, thankfulness. Because the opposite, unthankfulness, it just, it just brings forth such <laughs> depression. It brings forth, you can't serve God full, wholeheartedly if you're unthankful. And so thankfulness is, is the core of Christianity, I think, of knowing that God has saved you from so much. And... Um, in, in Romans 1, Paul actually speaks about that. and He says that these people who became unthankful are the people who basically, these are, this is the start of your backsliding. When you start 
being unthankful for your salvation, what God has done for you, what God is doing for you. This is the start of your backsliding. And so start with really praising God in prayer. Then the next thing I see here in this verse, chapter, verse 2 about prayer is, he says, I thank, and thanks, we give thanks to God always for you all. And verse 3, it says, remembering without ceasing. So enduring, persistence, persistence in prayer. And I just want to ask, if we ask ourselves, do we live up to this, this type of prayer life? Do we live up to one where we are continuing, we are, we are always, we are without ceasing in prayer? Now, this doesn't mean you are constantly on your knees in your prayer closet praying. No, in, in, in Romans 12, verse 12, it, it speaks of continuing instant in prayer. When I, when I read that, I know that's not truly what the word means, but when I read instant, it makes me think of like instant messaging, excuse me, but instant messaging, okay, this verse is a lot bigger than WhatsApp, but if you, if I, if I, if I think about the way I relate to my wife, I speak to her a lot of times, and I speak, and I sit down with her, and we have a good time, and we, we chat about deep things, and we're spending quality time together. But there are times when I talk to my wife over WhatsApp where I'm arranging something or whatever the case is. The point is, I'm constantly in contact with my wife. Sometimes it is less intimate than other times, but there's always contact. And so are you instant in prayer? Are you constantly um, in communion with God in whatever you're doing? And so... I know that's not truly what the word instant in this context means, but take it and apply it and think about it that way. All right, and then the last thing about prayer that I see here is in the last part of verse 2, it says, making mention of you in our prayers. So here I see a, a, a community of prayer. I see our prayers. And so I want to encourage you to find, to pray with people. And that includes at home. You don't... I'm not just talking about prayer meeting. When, when we say communal prayer, we always think prayer meeting. But yes, prayer meeting, but time with family, brothers, like pray together. Um, there's so much. It must be something that God ordained for it to be that way because when you pray with brothers and you seek sisters, when you seek God together, it is just, it is truly a wonderful thing and you hear from God and God speaks to you and it's, it's such a blessing. So communal prayer, persistent prayer, and thankful prayer. Um, and it's probably not exactly that, but have a look at the end of chapter 3. I think this is sort of the prayer that Paul was speaking about here in verse 2. Chapter 3 and verse 10. It starts off here saying in verse 10, Night and day, there once again, there's that continuance. Night and day, praying exceedingly that we might see your face and might perfect that which is lacking in your faith. Now God himself and our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way unto you and, un and the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. And I think that is the, the essence of, of Paul's heart when he prays for these, for these people. He has such a, a burden to see these people grow, to see these people being perfected in Christ, 
not just to get saved and then leave them. That is why he, this book is here, because he didn't just want them to get saved and then leave them. He wanted them to grow, to be established in doctrine. And so his heart towards people around him. And I think that is a prayer. He's praying for the Thessalonians. And so what is, what is our prayer towards one another, other brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we pray fervently for people we know that are, are struggling, people who need to be grounded in truth, people who are falling away from God because they are not grounded in truth? And are you doing something about it? Paul was doing something about it. All right, verse 3. It says, Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of God and our Father. Now, I think here what stood out is the, the, the core, motives of, core motives of honest Christian service. The motives, motives, why can't I say motives? Yeah. Motives of Christian service. So, we have motive, and then we have service. So the first one there is, we see there, the labor, the work of faith, the labor of love, and the patience of hope. So we have faith, love, and hope. And then we have work, labor, and patience. Huh? Oh, my table is a bit skew. All right, there. So, the motive being faith, love, and hope, the service being work, labor, and patience. So, let's look at the first one the faith. Take your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. So behind every act of service we do as Christians, there needs to be an honest motive. We don't, if, if you're doing something out of the wrong motive, then you could just well almost not do it. Because if it's about glorifying God, God looks upon the inward man, not like we look upon the outward. If your motive is for yourself, or if it's for, to be seen of men, then you're missing the point. Okay, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6. It says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. Then it says, By faith Noah, being warned of God, of the things not seen as yet, moved with fear, prepared an ark, not, um, prepared an ark to the saving of his house by which, by the which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteous, righteousness which is by faith. And it says, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and went out, not knowing whether he went. So here we see people acting based on faith. We see people doing something based on the faith. We see Noah, we see, we see Abraham. Later on in the chapter it speaks about Abraham, how he, he was willing to sacrifice his son because he had faith that God would raise him from the dead if 
it would be God, because God had promised that this man will be the, the seed through which God will bring forth his promise. And so we see that faith, the, mot- the motive here is faith, and that leads to work, that leads to action. So faith breeds action. James said it, that he said, show me your faith without works, but I'll show you my faith by my works. How do you show faith without works? You can't. Each one of you are exercising faith in the seats that you're sitting. If you didn't have faith that that seat was going to hold you up, you wouldn't be sitting in it. So faith leads to action. If you're not acting, it questions the faith. Okay? All right, so that's the, that's the fundamental principle here. The motive for service in this case is faith. The next one, labor of love. Have a look at First John. First John chapter 3, verse 16. First John 3, verse 16 says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him. How dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. All right? So here we see that love also does. Love gives of itself. Here we see in verse 16 how that we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. It said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. In Romans 5, verse 8, it says that, um, how does the verse start? Help me. God commendeth his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commends his love for us by sending his son. So this example of love leading to action starts with God. God gives his son. Jesus gives himself as a sacrifice because of love. And so here, what should be our motive for service here again is love. We should love one another and that should push us to serve. And then the last one, hope. Now, what do we, what do we hope in as, as Christians? What, what is our hope? Well, in, this, in the book of First Thessalonians, it speaks about the second coming of Christ. We have a hope of heaven. We have a hope of an eternity with God. We have a hope of glorified bodies. We have a hope of rewards in heaven. These are things we hope for. These are things that um, are beyond this world and things we have an eternal hope for. Now, how does does having a hope in in the second coming of Christ have anything to do with my service? Well, if you did not believe in the thing of rewards, what would be pushing you to serve? If you did not believe that Christ is coming, well, then is it really such a big deal that I should always be laboring for God? And so having a hope, having a mindset, setting your affection on things above will definitely help you to, to, to labor with the right motive. All right? First Thessalonians 2. First Thessalonians 2 verse 19. It says, For what is our hope? What is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are 
our glory and joy. So he says, what is our hope? It's you. It is the fact that we know that what we're investing, what we're laboring in you is fruit that bears to our account. And we want you to do the same. And so that is part of that hope. Now, another thing we can hope in as Christians, that's the second coming, but it's the promises of God in the trials that we go through. Both the second coming and the trials are something that is very pertinent to these Thessalonian believers. And so they, their hope is also in the trials, that the end of trials, these trying times, will bring hope in them. That's what Romans 5, verse 3 to 5 says, that that um, patience works experience and experience hope and hope makes not ashamed and so that is the purpose of these trials they're going through and that is what gives them hope so a firm trust that God will bring you through every trial you face that is what this hope is is a firm trust that God will bring you through every trial that you face and this hope is a sign of patience or it, it yields trust and trust is a sign of patience because if you trust God you will patiently wait on him so patience is a part of your service because it shows that you're trusting God for whatever circumstance you are currently in and then I I found this you know when you sometimes you force what's the word is it an analogy or an acronym which one is which no it's an acronym the letters H yeah okay there we go. Sometimes you force an acronym, but this one actually just happened. So, hope. I wrote it and then I saw it afterwards, so it's just pretty cool. So, having, no, what is, now I need to remember what I, what I, what accident, I need to remember what accidentally came to me. See, it proves that it came to me actually. Holding on, all right? So, it's holding on to the promises of eternity. If I don't, you okay, holding on to the promises of eternity and that is exactly what Paul is trying to bring across to these people this the idea of the second coming okay so this will lead to service in your life holding on to the promises of eternity now at the end of verse 3 first Thessalonians 3 let's get back here now we've looked at the the work of faith the labor of love and the patience of hope in our Lord the end of verse 3 says in the sight of God and our Father. Now, people may see you do something, okay? But don't do it for people to see you, okay? That, that it being the service, okay? The service we looked at, the it. Don't do it to be seen of people. There's nothing wrong with people seeing you, but don't, don't let that be your motive. Do it for God's glory. And so this is what the, Paul is saying. Do it in the sight of God, not in the sight of men. All right. A.W. Tozer said, It's not what a man does that determines whether his work is sacred or secular. It's why he does it. The motive is everything. Let a man sanctify the Lord God in his heart, and he can thereafter do no common act. 
everything you do, as Scripture says, should be to the glory of God. And you can do anything that you do, you can do to His glory if you are doing it with the right motive. All right, verse 4. Okay, knowing, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Now, if you have the curse I have, okay, it's not a curse, but whenever I read the, ver- the word election, I think Calvinism. Okay, like that's just where my mind goes. It's because I have Calvinistic friends and I know if I don't know how to answer this, they're going to bring it up and then I'm going to look like I don't know what's going on. So, when I read election, I think Calvinism. Okay, now... The first thing, I personally don't think this verse speaks about election in terms of, okay, wait, do you, election, the term in Calvinism, that means that God chose people before, um, we're going to say unconditionally. He chose people without any merit, okay, to salvation or to hell. That is essentially what unconditional election means. Now, I don't think this verse... Um, speaks about that. I don't think this verse speaks about election as an election unto heaven or salvation. I think this election here in the context, look at verse 5, it says, For our gospel came not unto you only, um, came not only unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Ghost. So I think this election speaks more to the, what you are chosen to in terms of being a Christian. You are chosen to yield fruit, to, to, to serve, to follow, to be a disciple. So this election is more one of what happens after you're saved and so what you do as a Christian. But let's also look at just this idea of unconditional election and this um, teaching of Calvinism. So just have a look quickly at, at Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42. And verse 1 says, This is the first time the word elect is used in the Bible, and it says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighteth, I have put my spirit upon him, and he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not cry, nor lift up, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. Now, this is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Okay? Have a look in uh, Matthew, Matthew 12. And we see the fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew 12. Now, what's happening there? in Isaiah 42 is that God calls Christ his elect. Now let's have a look at Matthew 12, verse 17. It says, That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. So here we have the fulfillment of that prophecy in Isaiah. And there, what's, Jesus is referred to the elect of God. Okay? So the argument I would like to make regarding when it comes to election, when it comes to um, this 
election that we read of in Scripture, because we can't deny the fact that there is an election spoken of in Scripture. So what is this election then? If it's not unconditional election, what is it? Well, I think it's based on the condition of being in Christ. Now, if, if we... Where's my cookie? If we see Christ as the elect of God, okay? You're Okay. Okay, so Christ is the elect, okay? I don't know if you can see, but there's a cross and it says elect. Okay, now we are outside of Christ, okay? Remember we looked at being in Christ. Here's, this is me, thin and tall. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Do you see the resemblance? Okay, now... Elect Christ. Christ is God's elect, okay? Now, we are outside of Christ. Now, what we get saved, we get baptized into Christ, okay? So, we get baptized into Christ. Jesus says in John 3, verse 14, he says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, okay? And it says, Whosoever believes in him shall have, I think it says eternal life, or I think that's what it says, will have eternal life. Now, we get saved, we get placed in Christ. Now, who decides whether you look at Christ? Now, that, that's where the key is. Is it God forcing you to, to look at Christ and accept Him as your Savior? Or is it you looking at Christ, seeing what He's done for you, just overwhelmed with the love that God has shown to us through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ? And so through that faith in Him, you get placed in Christ. Now, God elects Christ. But if you're in Christ, you are elect with Christ. Okay? And so that is what I see when it comes to election is God chose Christ. He is God's elect. And we being in Christ means we are part of God's elect. And that's why we have, like in Ephesians 1, have a look at Ephesians 1 quickly. I just want to show you a few verses there. So God chooses, predestines, elects those who are in Christ, and then he, does, he chooses them unto the adoption of sons. He chooses them unto holy living. He chooses or predestines them unto the confirmation of Jesus Christ, to become more like Jesus Christ. This choosing, this election, is not your salvation. It is what happens to someone who is saved. Okay? So have a look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says... According as he hath chosen us in him, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame um, before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So there we see being in Christ, you have the adoption unto children. And he also says in verse 4 that we are chosen in him that we should be holy and without blame. We are chosen in Christ so that we live this holy life, a life without blame. We read further on in, in chapter 1, look at verse 11. It says, In whom also you have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who worketh in all things after the counsel of, counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ. 
So there's the constantly being in Christ, and these things are your part being in Christ. Okay, then verse 13, in whom you also trusted. After that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. So your salvation, the sealing of you, is after that you believed. It's after that you looked at Christ, saw Him, and believed in Him. And that was your salvation. Then you get sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. So another verse that, that, that often comes, comes up, and this is actually a beautiful promise, if you look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. And we see here also part of God's pre, um, predestined plan for us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. Romans chapter 8 verse 28 it says and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are called according to his purpose now this his purpose I want to say is verse 30 his purpose is whom he did predestinate them he also called and whom he called them he also glorified uh, sorry verse 29 his purpose is for whom he did for know them he also predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren so God's purpose is, this, is for us to be predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. And so predestination does not mean God had an idea of these people are going to be in heaven and these people are not going to be in heaven. This is God saying, my plan for those who are in Christ is that they be conformed to the image of His Son. And that was God's predestined plan. And something that you should also notice here is, it says in verse 29, whom He did foreknow, He also predestined. God's foreknowledge precedes his predestination. His knowledge of those who would be in Christ is what determines his predestination of those people. Not his forecausal. Not him forcing someone into Christ and then saying, okay, now you will become like Jesus. Okay, foreknowledge, not forecausal. Good. Amen. <laughs> now, let's get back to verse 5 in First Thessalonians Verse 5, it says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. So the theme of this verse is the gospel is not just theology, it's action. Gospel is not just theology, it's action. Here it says, For our gospel came not unto you in word only, and then it goes on to say, but in power, in the Holy Ghost, in much assurance. Okay, so not in word only. So this word only, this implies that you do have to know the words of the gospel, right? Because it didn't come in word only, so that means the words were there. So you need to know the gospel. You need to know the doctrine of the gospel. So before we look at what are the other things that, um, I want to say, amplify the gospel or support the gospel, ask yourself, do you know the gospel? Are you able to explain the gospel to someone else. Because this is the gospel that saved you. So surely you should be able to, if anything, at least explain that to someone else. And that is in 1 Peter 3 verse 15, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. The hope that is in you. We have hope because we are saved. 
That hope is because of salvation. So if you have that hope, it means you have to have been saved. You need to have understood the gospel. So make effort with the gospel that you can at least bring it across in word. Then it says in power. Okay, you can open to Romans. Keep your place, but open to Romans chapter 1. Now it says in power. When um, Jesus, just before he went up into heaven, his ascension in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he said, but you shall receive power. All right? You shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses unto Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the uttermost part of you. So the Holy Ghost, the Comforter, is what will give that power. Okay? But then it also says in Matthew 10, verse 16, it says, Behold, I send you forth. So Jesus is sending his disciples, Matthew 10, verse 16. Behold, I send you forth as sheep into the midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents, as harmless as doves. And then he goes on to say, But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what you shall speak, for, in, for it shall be given you in that same hour what you shall speak. For it is not you that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. So the Holy Spirit working through someone is this power. The work of the Spirit through someone. Now, I asked you to look at Romans chapter 1, verse 15. It says, So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are um, at Rome also. Now, this, when you say, when I read this, for as much as is in me, I am ready to preach. That is someone who has yielded himself to God's work. That's someone who said, as much as is in me, I'm ready. God, if you say go, I go. I'm yielded to God's work. And then he goes on to say in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So what I want to point out here is that the power of God in the gospel is through the Spirit's work in your life. Okay? Not the Spirit's work, the Spirit's work through you. Your yieldedness to God's work in your life. So it's the Word, but then it's also the power. And this power is your submission to this work of the Spirit in your life. If you want to be an effective witness, you need to know what the, the Gospel is, but you need to be yielded to the work of the Spirit. Okay. Then the next thing it says, back to First Thessalonians, sorry. Chapter, oh, verse 5. It says, but also in power, and then it says, and in the Holy Ghost. So here we see, separate from the power, we see the Holy Ghost. And so this is John chapter 16, verse 8. I'll read it to you. It says, and when he is come, the comforter, right? He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So this is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this work can happen outside of you. Okay, this is something the Holy Spirit does. So this is not the work of the Spirit through you, not that power that we just read about. So have a look at 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I just want to get through this verse and then we're done. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. It says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then, neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, 
and every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. So there we have labor. We have someone laboring in the gospel through the Holy Spirit, and um, God will give, but God will give the increase. But then it says in verse 9, For we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. So here we see the work of the Spirit working apart from you. We see you watering, you planting, but then it's God that gives the increase of that seed that you sowed. And so this gospel that must be preached must be done in word. It must be done in the power. In other words, your submission to the work of the Holy Spirit. But then it must be also done where the Holy Spirit works in that person's life. And that comes through you praying for that person. You asking God to work in that man, that woman's heart, apart from you. Okay? That is what the Holy Spirit does in those people's life. So we have word, power, power being your submission to the work of the Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit. So God's guidance, God's work in that person's life. And then we have much assurance. So Paul is saying here, the end of verse 5, he's saying, in much assurance, he's saying, you believe the gospel with a firm conviction or full persuasion because of its truth. That is what much assurance means. It means that you've believed the gospel with a firm conviction and full persuasion of its truth. Now, when you get a marketing phone call and someone tells you something about, you know, those phone calls you love, it tells you about this amazing deal that just, it's, it's incredible. And you think, well, if this deal is true, I really want in on it. So you go along with it, okay? So you have something in you that's like, I hope this is true, okay? But there isn't much assurance, okay? And so with, when it comes to, he's saying, in much assurance. Now, how much assurance do you have in the truth of the gospel? Do you treat it like, I, if it's true, I want part. I want, I want my part in that. Is that how you treat it, or do you have much assurance of its truth? Don't treat it like that, that marketing phone call. And perhaps that's why so many Christians are unsure of their salvation, because they, they just don't truly believe the message of the gospel. So living Christianity breeds faith, not knowing the words alone. And that's what this verse is saying. Living Christianity breeds faith. The word, the power, the Holy Ghost, and assurance. And so the word of the gospel plus a testimony. So the testimony of the messenger is what makes you an effective witness. The word of the gospel plus your testimony, which is the power of the Holy Spirit working in you, the work of the Holy Ghost, and the assurance. That is what makes you an effective witness. Without this combination you won't be able to be an effective witness of the gospel. And that is why Paul and Silas and um, Timothy were able to be so effective there, because their testimony backed up their message. All right. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time we could spend in your word. And thank you for teaching us so much, Lord. Um, you're so good to us. And this, the grace that you have given us, this this guidance that your word offers our lives is, is beyond our knowledge and we thank you so much for, for helping us to understand it and helping us to be guided in life through it. Please continue to work in us. Please continue to work, us, work in us in this day. Give us ears to hear, Lord, what we need to hear in the sermon to come and also give us a good time of fellowship now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.